Hello, and welcome back to Season 5 of the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Albert Brown, and today we will be joining Amanda Chow and Jeff Urch as they interview Haley Rushford in Part 2 of our Employment Law Series. In the spirit of reconciliation, we'd first like to acknowledge that Hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kainai, Pekani, and Siksika, as well as the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, and the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge that many First Nations, Métis and Inuit, who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Let us join Amanda and Jeff as they speak with Ms. Rushford. Welcome back to Hearsay. My name is Amanda, and I'm here with Jeff. Today, we'll be exploring the area of workplace accommodation related to family status. In doing so, we are very excited to introduce our listeners to our guest speaker, Haley Rushford. Haley is an associate in Sanfiro Tamarkin LLP, specifically in the Labor and Employment Law Practice Group. Haley has represented clients before the Provincial Court of Alberta, the Court of the Queen's Bench of Alberta, and the Alberta Human Rights Commission. Welcome, Haley, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Workplace accommodation is something that we often don't think about until we need it. And when we do need it, it's often difficult to identify what we are and what we are not entitled to and what specific steps we can take to receive accommodation. To start off generally, Haley, could you walk us through what workplace accommodation is? Absolutely. So we'll just start off, I guess, by talking about what actually is an accommodation at work. So an accommodation requirement typically arises from a ground connected to human rights under the Alberta Human Rights Act. So that could be anything from race, religious beliefs, Uh, mental disability, physical disability, age, but the most common are those arising from a medical condition. We also often see them or sometimes see them related to family status or religion. So really any employee can request an accommodation, but it typically has to be based on a protected ground. So a personal preference, for example, is unlikely to reach that threshold unless it's somehow tied to that protected ground. So there's really no one-size-fits-all approach in terms of what an accommodation at work looks like. It would really be dependent on, you know, anything from the industry, the workplace, the size of that particular employer, the employee, and really comes down to that particular situation. So for some examples of what an accommodation at work could be, Um, You know, with a medical accommodation, it might be that they need modified duties, like not climbing the stairs or lifting something above a certain weight. Another example might be a religious accommodation. If somebody needs to leave by a certain time every other Friday for prayer or someone can't work shifts on a Sunday because they need to attend church. You know, another example in the modern context that we've become quite familiar with through the pandemic is working from home or flexible hours as parents were helping their kids with remote learning. So it really does depend on each specific circumstance, what's required in that instance, 
and what accommodations the employer is able to offer within the bounds of their legal obligations. So basically, it, it really depends. It depends on the context, right? It absolutely depends on the context. This analysis with respect to workplace accommodation is really factually dependent on each specific circumstance and the case at hand. Um, so, you know, when you, when you hear in law school, it's that factual contextual analysis. That's really the case here. Who can request accommodation? Any employee really can request an accommodation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that accommodation will be granted, but there's not a particular category or a particular level that you have to reach within the organization before you can request that accommodation. So really, the process more or less starts in most cases with the employee requesting that accommodation through the process that's been established by their particular company, or simply by reaching out to a superior, you know, whether it be a manager or a more senior colleague, and, and asking how to get that process started and alerting them to the accommodation that's needed. Then to what extent is accommodation required by the employer? So I think an important place to start here is talking about uh, you know, the fact that really it is the employer who has the duty to accommodate. This is a burden borne by the employer, and it's, an, it's a legal obligation arising, as we've reviewed, from human rights legislation in the province and in Canada in general. Um, and so to what extent is accommodation required? Again, this is a factual analysis that depends on each circumstance. So what you would be looking for here is whether accommodation has been uh, essentially assessed and put in place to the point of undue hardship. Um, so undue hardship is, you know, it, it doesn't come down to any particular one factor that reaches the status of undue hardship. It looks different for every employer, again, depending on the resources that that employer has. So for example, you know, a multi-million dollar uh, a year in revenue company would have very different resources than a mom and pop grocery shop, right? And so that undue hardship analysis has to take that into account. In terms of establishing that threshold, some things that we've seen from the case law that could establish undue hardship can be things like exorbitant cost, uh, an impact on the morale or the rights of other employees within that organization, if it infringes on any of their rights. Another thing that commonly comes up in the context of undue hardship is a reduction in workplace safety. So those are some examples, um, but not necessarily an exhaustive list of the type of things that might be considered when an employer is uh, accommodating to the point of undue hardship. And I should say, you know, to speak about what that accommodation process looks like, the duty to accommodate is really a two-part test. Uh, there's, a, there's a procedural duty and a substantive duty. So what that really comes down to is, first of all, looking at the process that was followed to assess the accommodation request and the issue of the accommodation itself in the first place. And then as a secondary uh, piece of that test, looking at what accommodation was actually offered 
or what reason was given for why an accommodation couldn't be offered in that instance. So generally speaking, an employee who's requesting an accommodation on the basis of a protected ground needs to work with the employer to gather the relevant and necessary information to determine what an appropriate accommodation would be and put measures in place to make that accommodation happen. And if that accommodation can't happen or the employer is claiming that it can't, that's when the undue hardship analysis would come into play as essentially a means of establishing, you know, we followed our procedural and substantive duty here. And because of the exorbitant cost, for example, we cannot accommodate this individual. Um, you know, in terms of where the puck stops with respect to undue hardship, uh, an accommodation also doesn't need to be perfect or immediate. It has to be reasonable in the circumstances. So that's another place where the threshold can, to accommodate can stop. If an employee, for example, has a particular accommodation in mind that might be suitable but doesn't actually work for the employer's business, there's no duty to actually provide that accommodation. It just has to be a reasonable and suitable accommodation. And the employee does have uh, an obligation to participate in the process of finding that accommodation uh, with the employer. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CGSW 90.9. It sounds like this, when we say fact-based analysis in the context of accommodation, and when we're talking about in the circumstances that we're really talking about assessing reasonably and in just plain sort of terms, the back and forth between the two parties, whether what they did was appropriate and, and whether they were really trying um, honestly to, to kind of address the situation and to work with each other. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And, and you know, you're, you've hit the nail on the head there with respect to you're really just looking at was the exchange between the parties reasonable? Did they work together to find a suitable solution? And, and barring a suitable solution, is there actually a legitimate reason for the employer not to provide that accommodation? Uh, legitimate reasons being um, that to do so would basically invite undue hardship on the business. Uh, and the other thing that I didn't address earlier uh, as a threshold is also a bona fide occupational requirement. Uh, otherwise known as a BFOR. Um, so another reason that an employer may not be able to present a, a reasonable accommodation to the employee is if there is a bona fide occupational requirement that connects to the job that basically inhibits that uh, accommodation from being available. So with a BFOR, what you're really looking at is whatever rule or standard or practice that's in place uh, in the employer's workplace, that it was adopted for a purpose that's rationally connected to the performance of that job. The second thing that you're looking at is whether that standard was adopted in an honest and good faith belief that it was necessary 
for fulfilling that legitimate work-related purpose. And then the third part of that test is basically to connect the two. So showing that that standard is reasonably necessary to the accomplishment of that legitimate work-related purpose uh, and demonstrating that it would be impossible then to accommodate the individual um, with, by, without uh, undue hardship being reached. So an example here might be uh, somebody requesting to work from home but they work, uh, you know, on site, for example. For example, if the accommodation was to work from home, and this particular employee absolutely needed to be uh, at the premise, let's say for safety reasons, for example, then that might be an example of a bona fide occupational requirement that would inhibit the employer from allowing that accommodation uh, without undue hardship. And just to confirm, uh, for an employee to request workplace accommodation, where can they go? Is it just their superior? Who would it be? HR? So it's a good question and, you know, not to be a broken record here, but the, the answer really is it depends. Some companies are great about uh, establishing a formal process for request an accommodation and in fact they should in all likelihood have a formal process that is widely communicated and well understood by their employees to be able to access those supports or put those requests through as needed. Um, the practical reality is that a lot of businesses, particularly smaller businesses, don't necessarily have the resources uh, or haven't received the advice to have that kind of process in place. And so the practical reality for some employees is that it will just be, uh, you know, an exercise of going to their superior, like I was saying earlier, whether that's their direct manager, a senior colleague, whoever it is that they report to, and just saying, you know, I, I require this accommodation um, because of this protected ground. You know, if it's a medical accommodation, for example, in all likelihood, they would need to have a doctor's note supporting that. Um, so there, there do need to be some checks and balances uh, that are baked into the process as well. It's not enough to just say, I need this accommodation and, you know, it's an honor code. Sometimes there are uh, situations where having that that proof would be necessary and appropriate. But, uh, you know, where wherever they are, whether there's a process or not, a good place to start is by trying to speak with somebody in HR to direct them to the appropriate process. And where HR is not available, speaking to a superior to try to uh, get that process started and moving forward. And um, are there any resources for employees or employers to determine whether uh, the request for accommodation is under protected grounds? So it would really just be coming back to reviewing that uh, Alberta Human Rights Act. Most HR representatives will be uh, relatively familiar with the basic tenets of uh, human rights legislation. A bigger company, for example, might even have internal counsel that is aware of these issues and managing them. And again, it really depends on the size of the employer because the practical reality is that we need to acknowledge that all employers have different resources available to them. 
in theory, all employers should be aware of human rights legislation in Alberta or in whatever province they're operating their business in. But in terms of a, a resource that's available, <laughs> I would say speak to a lawyer, uh, speak to your internal counsel, and at the very least, the internet is a good source of knowledge. Going to Hanley, for example, or the Alberta Human Rights Commission has a lot of great information bulletins for the general public, and that can be a great starting point as well. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's great information. Thank you. I was I was starting to think about just as well. There must be a a range of different um, individuals and with different uh, understandings and complexities that that end up perhaps litigating these matters or even just filing complaints. And in that case, the assessments and the approaches of decision makers probably are quite flexible depending on the sophistication of complainants or the parties involved. I guess where I'm getting with that is essentially it's really it's the it depends aspect of this where in the assessment of these claims and in the assessment so the assessment of these disputes that it really becomes quite flexible depending on the sophistication of the parties because there's going to be like it sounds like you're suggesting and and from what I'm hearing and from what I can imagine from you know my own experiences in the, in the workforce that there's even even medium sized but especially small sized companies or employers probably don't necessarily have either the time or the complexity or the knowledge to really um have a full understanding of these processes, at which point that might affect the assessments and, yeah, the overall process. I, I think that's absolutely fair. The the Anyone really can submit a human rights complaint. It's a process that's set up for uh, self-represented litigants. Now, a lot of people that are submitting human rights complaints do have representation, but exactly to your point, there are a lot of people who who wouldn't. And so it needs to be a process that's set up to be accessible uh, to everybody that feels that they might have a legitimate complaint. The sophistication of the parties does come into play in some cases. Um, my, what it really comes back to in terms of the process for requesting an accommodation as a starting point is reviewing what processes are available to you and have com been communicated to you by your employer. If there are no processes, going to an HR representative, if you have something like that in your business and saying, I would like to start this process, what's my next step? And failing that to speak to a superior. Um, and to your point, every company has different resources. In theory, these processes should be in place. Um, but in practice, if people are listening to this to figure out how they should start, uh, that would be my recommendation. Start by looking for the process. If it's not there, go to the person that might know about the process. And failing that, go to a superior. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CGSW 90.9. Now that we have a grasp of what workplace accommodation is, let's zone into the specific aspect of workplace accommodation related to family status. So for parents juggling work and childcare, what kind of workplace accommodation can they request? So what we would see typically is, you know, a request for more flexible hours. So for example, if somebody has childcare obligations, first thing in the morning before their kids go off to school um, and they need to be with them for a couple of hours when they return home from school for child care, for feeding them dinner, etc. That might be one kind of accommodation that we see, some flexible hours, um, which might bleed into 
a remote work situation. Uh, you know, if you're not in the office for the typical hours, or for example, if you need to leave at, you know, 3 p.m. every day when typical office hours might be considered 8 to 5, that would be typically what we would see. Uh, something else that can arise is in the context of commuting. So if you have an accommodation, again, before school for childcare, for example, and your employer is trying to request that you travel, you know, two hours each way, and that's going to get in the way of you providing that childcare, then maybe that's something that you can't do, and they would need to accommodate that. So again, it comes back to each particular individual circumstance, but the most common accommodations that would you would see in the context of family status would be flexible hours and working from home. Is the uh, process for requesting such accommodation the same as other ones? So it is and it isn't. It's the same in that, you know, if there's a process in place through your company, that's the process to follow. One thing that's unique about family status accommodation is that the employee needs to be able to show that they've made reasonable efforts to find an accommodation on their own. Um, so for example, if childcare is an issue, what have you done to try also to uh, deal with that childcare problem? Have you looked at daycare? Have you looked at um, having a nanny come in? Is that something that you can afford? That's also included in the analysis, right? An option that might be available to one person might be financially unfeasible for somebody else. And so, again, it comes back to that fact-dependent analysis. Uh, but before a family status accommodation moves forward, there is an onus on the employee to say, look, I've done everything that I can try to do here to, to solve this problem. And, you know, I've kind of come up with, with nothing. Um, after that, and, you know, that, that standard is reasonable. It's not like they have to go to the end of the earth to try to find uh, a, some kind of solution. But they do have to show that they've tried. Um, so a good example of where this threshold wouldn't be met is, let's say, for example, that uh, you had a child who was of an age that when they came home from school, they could more or less take care of themselves for an hour or two after school. And as long as you were home by six to make them dinner and take care of them, that would be fine. Um, again, you know, another example might be if there are after school activities that are optional, but not mandatory, family status might not apply in that situation. And so you have to look at, is it really coming back to an essential childcare obligation? Or is this something that maybe can be worked around or is maybe something that might be considered more optional rather than essential or necessary? When employees, uh, say parents, are um, trying to submit proof that they have made reasonable efforts to mitigate um, their child care um, responsibilities at home, are there any privacy issues that may arise in this process? So it's, it's about collecting the information that is required uh, to establish that that accommodation 
can't be made uh, through their own means. So you wouldn't need to go necessarily into your bank records and say, see, look at how much this childcare would cost. Based on my bank records, you can see that I can't afford that. Uh, a more appropriate measure might be to, you know, simply log the efforts that you've made to, to look at daycares, record what that daycare costs. And, you know, your employer knows what you're paid every year, right? So if you're, if you can say, look, this is going to be, you know, 30% of my paycheck is just going to daycare every month, um, that would kind of be enough information. You wouldn't need to go into necessarily personal financial records. Another thing, you know, that might come up with respect to privacy is let's say that there's a child who has a medical or mental disability um, and they require care and attention and not to the level of professional care and attention, but certainly they need a caretaker there with them uh, before and after school. That kind of information in terms of what uh, mental or medical disability do they have that requires that kind of care would be required, but going into the details of that medical or mental disability likely wouldn't be required um, unless there are exceptional circumstances. So what it really comes down to is what information is reasonably required to establish that you cannot accommodate your child care needs on your own. Um, and then if the employer needs more information, generally speaking, some of the privacy considerations around that would be what information is being collected, who has access to that information, and how is that information being protected, where and how is that information being stored, and how is that information going to be used, right? And that information should be protected uh, to the extent that only people who reasonably need access to it have access to it. So someone that's involved you know, with HR, for example, in establishing the accommodation would be an appropriate person to have access. Another colleague, um, particular department that has nothing to do with HR, should not be able to find that information on a database. In our conversation, we've used the word reasonable a lot. It seems like we generally know what being reasonable means, but maybe not. What does being reasonable in this situation mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Reasonable is sort of the great contextual standard that runs through every contextual analysis test that exists in law, right? And so what's reasonable in the circumstance is going to be really dependent on the facts. If somebody is earning $20,000 a year, it would not then be reasonable to expect them to pay for childcare that's going to cost them $1,000 a month. Right. Whereas somebody who is a senior executive may have more resources to find reasonable accommodations for child care. And so what does reasonable mean? It means that you are looking at the specific facts within the context that they exist in and saying in this situation, what what would the average person, you know, that standard of the reasonable person what would the reasonable person think is appropriate here? Would the reasonable person think that it's appropriate to ask somebody that only earns $20,000 a year to pay $12,000 a year for childcare? Likely not. Whereas $12,000 a year for somebody that's earning a salary of $200,000 
would probably be seen as reasonable. And so that's a way that you can think about it. The context is everything. What are potential consequences of uh, an employer failing to accommodate for the employee's um, request? So barring undue hardship or a BFOR that supports them not providing that accommodation, there's two things really to think about here. The first is what are the legal implications, right? This could lead to obviously a human rights complaint, potentially a wrongful dismissal claim as well. Uh, but you also have to think about the court of public opinion as an employer these days. We get our news from everywhere now. And these stories are finding their way to the public eye in a way that they never used to before, which is great because it is holding employers to account. And so employers do need to think about the legal consequences, but also the business implications. What is the risk of reputational damage here in the court of public opinion? Um, so you really do have to be of two minds, the legal risk and the business risk. And I think that that is for the better and will hopefully lead to more reasonable accommodations being granted in the workplace where they're warranted. Thank you, Haley, for taking the time to speak with us. The Hearsay Podcast is proud to present you with legal information, but it's important to remember that this is information and does not constitute legal advice. We are law students, not lawyers, and the podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer, as there is no substitute for a professional. Thank you for listening to the Hearsay Podcast. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CGSW and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary chapter. We would like to take this opportunity to thank CGSW for all of their support. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.